Well, we continue our sermon series this morning looking at Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. These chapters contain the letters to seven churches from Jesus. Not only seven churches existed in Asia Minor at the time, modern-day Turkey, but there, there were seven that Jesus wrote a letter to. Um, take a look at the screen if you want to see this quickly. I know it's small, but you can get an idea. There you have uh, these seven cities, seven churches. Ephesus we looked at two weeks ago, uh, kind of at about 7 o'clock. Um, and then Smyrna, right above it there, about 9 o'clock. And then geographically, right at the top, 12 o'clock on the map, there's a red circle. We come to Pergamum, which we will look at today. Um, and then you see Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven real churches in the first century, and Jesus had a word, had a letter to those seven churches. But they serve still as representative churches. At the end of each letter, Jesus says the same thing. He or she who has an ear, let him or her hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of a sudden, this letter that was written to uh, an angel, it's the word messenger, could be the literal angel of of that church. It could be like the the pastor, the the one who brings the message. We aren't exactly sure. Scholars are divided. It doesn't matter. But this letter is written to the angel, the messenger of these churches, and it's addressed to the congregation. But then at the end, let individuals, let the one who hears hear what the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is the one writing, even though it's Jesus speaking. We have the Trinity at work even there, two members of the Trinity, what, what the Spirit says to the church is. So there's application, is my point, to all of us. Written to seven specific churches, but they serve representative. We've noted so far in each of the messages, I'll repeat quickly one more time, there's a pattern you see in almost all of the letters, all seven. You have a, an address to the angel, to Pergamum, as we'll see today. So there's this command, write this letter, write this message down. There's a statement from Jesus about who he is that he had already said in chapter one when John got this vision. Um, Jesus revealed himself and, and what keeps happening in chapter two and three in each letter, Jesus, as he's addressing a church, there apparently is some issue they're dealing with that some aspect of who he is addresses that and and speaks to what they're going through and what he has to say to them. So an address, a statement about Jesus that comes from chapter one, and then a statement of, of commendation or praise for five of the seven. Five have a statement of praise. Then the pattern is there's a statement of rebuke or concern also for five of the seven. Um, Interestingly, it's only Smyrna, who we looked at last week, and Philadelphia that that get a praise. Uh, They don't get it, that is, a a rebuke. And then Sardis and Laodicea, they they don't get a praise or accommodation. They only get a rebuke. So it's interesting to note that. Then there's an exhortation of some sort. Repent. We'll see that today. Sometimes it's don't be afraid, don't fear. Sometimes it's, it's be faithful. There's an exhortation by Jesus. And then there's a statement about what Jesus will do. Again, sometimes uh, it's a statement that, it, that serves as a consequence of disobedience, what, what he will do if they continue to disobey. Then uh, at times there's a, an offer of encouragement if they press on. Uh, sometimes there's a warning of judgment if they don't change or turn. So, so there's some statement of what Jesus will do. Then there's this invitation to hear. Let the one who hears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the promise to the Nike. Remember the word Nike comes, is the word victor or or conqueror, overcome. There's this promise to the one who, who overcomes and who conquers. So that pattern is repeated. And today, as you see with the circle, we come to the church at Pergamum. So let me say just a few things about this city from antiquity. Scholars tell us uh, that Pliny called Pergamum by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Uh, Its rise to prominence came in the third century BC, so before Christ, before the first century AD or or 
you know, common era, right? But back in the third century BC, it rose to prominence as it became the capital of the Adelids. And it was under Eumenes, boy, these guys and their names, the Eumenes the uh, second, Pergamum became the first, or excuse me, the finest. He called it flower of Hellenistic civilization. It boasted a library of more than 200,000 volumes at one time. In fact, there's a legend that parchment was invented in Pergamum because the supply of papyrus from Egypt was cut off in the midst of these different political coups and attempts to rout different people. Again, that's legend. So there's all this great word about it as a city, but, but religion played a big part in Pergamum. We'll see that at length today. There were temples for the goddess Roma and Augustus, the divine Augustus. It was a center of worship for four of the most important pagan cults of the day. Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, excuse me, and Asclepios. We'll talk more about Asclepios today quite a bit. In fact, actually, the shrine of Asclepios, who was known as the god of healing. In fact, Asclepios, as a lowercase god, was called savior. It's interesting. This, this quote, god of healing, uh, attracted people from all over the world. You may recognize this graphic, the American Cancer Society, of course, but uh, what I'm concerned about you noticing is the staff with the snake wrapped around it. This was the symbol of Asclepios. So we don't think much about that. In fact, you still see some variation of that on ambulance uh, vehicles today. And it's this symbol that goes back to this, this god. This was the symbol, this, this supposed god who could heal. Again, we'll talk more about that as well. The church there in Pergamum, we don't know when this church began. We don't have any account in the book of Acts of the Apostle Paul traveling to the city there. But if you look back at the map, uh, what we guess is that Paul was in Ephesus. So again, kind of hard to see, but at about the seven o'clock position there, Paul spent over two years in Ephesus. And so it's very possible at some point in those years, he traveled up not only to Smyrna, but to Pergamum, or others in his entourage traveled up, but at some point the gospel got there. There were already Jews living there as well. So we aren't sure exactly when or how, but at some point the gospel makes its way up. There was a church there, but there was all sorts of pressure because of what we've talked about almost every week. At this time, as Rome is in charge, if you will, there was the imperial cult or the cult of the emperor. Most in the Greco-Roman world were very syncretistic in their religion. Um, That is, they were not devoted to only one god. They worshiped and served many gods and enlisted the aid in any god who would help them. And so Christians stood apart because they refused to recognize Caesar as God or, or any of these other gods. They recognized Jesus as the one true God. In fact, God, as monotheists, revealed himself in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. And again, we'll come back to this as a problem in a minute. But so lots going on in the region, but especially in in Pergamum. And so if you have a Bible, I would ask you to open to Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Again, the third letter, the third church to Pergamum. And we're going to see today that this church had conviction about Jesus but they were also a church that had compromise. And, and so Jesus has a word to them, a, a good word and a commending word because of their conviction, but a word of rebuke because of their compromise. And as a representative church, we need to have ears to hear as well what, what Jesus might be saying, what the Spirit is saying to us as well. So Revelation chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet 
you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. So to this church, to this angel, this messenger at Pergamum, Jesus says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So again, those words pull from what Jesus has revealed of himself in chapter one. So if you have your Bible open and you look back at verse 16, John saw this. In the right hand, he, he, that's Jesus, held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so the part of that vision that John saw of Jesus, that's what Jesus says to this church, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. To a church like Pergamum, living in the context that it did in a city that it was, which was this provincial capital, right, where, where those in charge, the pro-council, were granted the, quote, right of the sword. If you lived in a town like this, it was the government that could execute you at any moment. Well, this word from Jesus would be a comforting word. They, they would hear, oh, this is good to hear that, that this one who's writing to us, he's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In other words, you, you live in a town where, yes, at any minute the government could come in and, and rule and execute and, and wield the right of the sword, but, but I'm the sovereign one above. I, in fact, have ultimate power over life and death. It's not the state, but... But more than that, and, and again, we, we hear that, and we're, that's supposed to comfort, I guess, maybe, but there is more to it because, in fact, the sword, it represents Jesus' words. Uh, throughout Revelation, and again, as I teased a couple weeks ago, our look at the seven churches, it's, it's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easy section of Revelation, although we'll see there's, there's challenges nonetheless, but right, Revelation is this amazing vision of Jesus and of what's to come, and there's things to understand, and, and so we're going to have to put some pieces of the whole revelation together, but what we're going to see is that Jesus will, in fact, judge and destroy by his word one day. In fact, later in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, we read that Jesus will strike down the nations with his sharp sword, Revelation nineteen fifteen, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. I've, I've joked before, I remember moving back to Sonoma County over 20 years ago now, or right about 20 years ago, um, and one of the bumper stickers I saw a lot 20-some years ago, around here, I didn't see it as much in Ventura County where we lived, but up here, one of the bumper stickers I saw was, who would Jesus bomb, question mark. And again, right, a point was trying to be made by that related to uh, wartime and, and some of the things that our country was involved in. And, and that's neither here nor there. I, I always thought when I saw those, whoever made that bumper sticker and the people that put that, again, I, I realize there's a point to be made as is the point to most bumper sticker teachings. There's a kernel of truth. And yet, Jesus says 
And he's going to strike down the nations. He's, he's going to judge one day. Or a few verses later, Revelation 19, 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image, These were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. It's it's a gruesome picture of, of King Jesus returning when he does and when he brings final judgment, but that's part of who Jesus is, part of what will happen one day. So the point, church, for us and for them was that the sword from his mouth symbolized verbal, a verbal pronouncement of judgment. So he says, to you in Pergamum, and I know things about what you're dealing with. We'll get to that in a minute more. But he says, I'm the one who, who's, who's got the sharp sword, the sharp two-edged sword. Don't worry, it's sharper. I'm in more control than the government. And in fact, one day I will bring final judgment and you need to know that, be encouraged by that and, and you'd be warned by that. So the sword symbolizes a verbal pronouncement of judgment and Jesus is gonna have more to say on this note in a moment. Those in the church who compromise by giving their allegiance over to the emperor or participating in what we're about to see, the, these sins of idolatry and sexuality and some mixture of it, they will face the judging word of Jesus. Jesus will deal with this, these in this church. Verse 13, we, we see now Jesus' word of commendation or praise where he commends them. As with Ephesus and Smyrna, we, we again have this word of commendation and praise. Verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know where you've decided to live, where you're making home. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I know where you dwell, and it's where Satan dwells, and I know that in the days of Antipas, the one who, who gave his life for believing in me, you, there's, there's many of you who held on to my name, even like, like this one Antipas. So again, again, we have a few things to unpack here. What does it mean, this being a place, Pergamum, where, where Satan dwells? What exactly did Jesus have in mind uh, to this church at the time, to us as well? Uh, there are many suggestions that are put forward to explain the phrase. Um, many mention the fact that you have these throne-like altars to Zeus that overlook the city. And so as you would approach this, this town, you would see these, these temples to these gods, okay? Others think that this is speaking of, back to the cult I mentioned, uh, the god Asclepios. Again, the one where we get this, this symbol of the staff and the snake, Remember, he was called a savior. He was the God looked to for for healing. And his symbol is is a rod with a snake. So if he's in the culture represented as the God of healing, but if you're a Christian, just think for a minute. You're a Christian. I mean, for us, we we look at that symbol and we don't think anything about it. That's just, oh yeah, that's that weird symbol that we see for the American Red Cross and we see on ambulance uh, vehicles sometimes and whatnot. But, but if you're a Christian, just a few years from, from the time of Jesus and you live in this town where this symbol is a big deal and it's connected to uh, the worship of a God, you, you might be thinking of other things. Of course, in Genesis 3, it's a serpent. That's Satan who, who deceives Adam and Eve. Uh, Christians are going to know that. They're going to think, oh, a serpent? We don't like serpents. That's why I've always said I hate snakes. Like Indiana Jones, I hate snakes. Um, Christians should hate snakes. It's biblical. But listen again forward into the book of Revelation. 
Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down. Who's, who's the great dragon? That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. That's chapter 12, verse 9. Or later, chapter 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So for the Christians living in that day, this symbol, uh, it wasn't just, oh, whatever, that's a medical symbol, as it is nowadays. They, they would have thought, this is where Satan dwells. That's the symbol of Satan, a serpent. And those would have been thoughts in their minds. So maybe that is, again, what is at play. Um, Others say, well, as you approach Pergamum by the roads from the south, the actual shape of the city hill would appear as a giant throne towering above uh, the plain. And and in fact, all throughout the Bible, when the word throne is used, it's it's like a king's throne. And and Jesus one day is going to sit on a throne and rule. And, And so, these, these ideas, you've got all these temples and thrones, you've got a hill that looks like a throne, um, you've got all these gods being worshipped, and this one, Asclepios, whose symbol is a serpent. Again, maybe it's all of that, some of that, we don't know for sure. Probably it's all of these things combined, what Jesus means, I know where you dwell, where Satan dwells. This, this was a city that was was so prominent as a cult center of the emperor worship in Asia. I mean, if Rome was in the West, this was the place in the East in terms of the empire. And so with all these temples being built and with all this worship going on, um, it's no wonder, Jesus says, this is where Satan dwells. There's a lot of evil happening. And it's not just because of worship, but but evil practices itself and people practice evil and we'll see that in a moment. In general, this was a city that was dominated by false gods, by all these different deities and their temples and their worship. And it was hostile to Christianity. When you said Pergamum to someone in in those days, People thought of gods and goddesses and temples and pagan worship. I mean, religious practice. People thought of those things. Just like in our day, we can name cities around the world and we immediately think of things associated with those cities. Well, Pergamum brought all these things to mind. It was hostile to Christianity. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. And he says there, You didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. That word witness is the Greek word martyr. It's where we get the word that would mean to to be martyred, to to die for your beliefs. At this point, it doesn't mean that yet. It just means witness. If you're you're a witness for anything, you're you're a martyr. Hopefully, you don't become (laughs) what, what the word would take on in terms of its grander meaning, right? Although... Christians are martyred. We spent a few minutes last week praying for the persecuted church in the world where it's illegal to worship Jesus. And they, many Christians, do give their life for their faith, like this guy Antipas. We know nothing about him other than what is listed here, except what we know is special. Jesus calls him my faithful witness. That's pretty special because look back in chapter 1, verse 5. John, in giving his greeting, says, grace and peace to you, verse 4, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. That's a title for Jesus. And Jesus says, this guy Antipas, who died for his, his belief in me, I'll give him my name. He was a faithful witness. Pretty special for, for Jesus to give his name in that moment to, to this guy, Antipas, who would be a witness that truly would become a picture of the full extent of that word martyr, who would give his life for the sake of the gospel, being devoted, holding fast to 
Jesus. Now, here's what we need to understand. In the Roman world at the time, and if you ever saw the movie Gladiator, uh, you should have some idea of this. Um, in, in this time, um, in, in, the, in this pluralistic world, they had all sorts of gods. And so there was no problem for you to believe in Jesus, Christian, as long as you were just adding Jesus to your worship of all these other gods. And so you would burn some incense and do some little things and say your prayers. And if you want to add Jesus in there, that's just fine. The problem is, though, true Christians didn't just add Jesus to the list of all the gods. They said, no, no, this pluralistic stuff has to go. We worship Jesus alone. And that's when the Romans started having a problem because that means you're not worshiping the emperor. Now, again, worship emperor, worship Zeus, worship Asclepios, and throw in Jesus, sure. But to say none of these others but Jesus alone, that's then where problems arise. Addition, more gods, no problem, one pastor put it. Subtraction, big problem. So, see, because... They weren't doctrinal. The Romans didn't care what you, what you said you believed, what you know, your creed was. They, they weren't doctrinal. It was all about ritual, going through these motions, saying prayers and, and doing things. And again, just you know, choosing whichever God you needed to. And so if you can do all these gods and the emperor and pull in from Jesus, fine. But to say Jesus alone is God, not the emperor, and I won't worship these others, now you've got a big problem. It's again and again and again <clears throat> the issue of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the only way to God the Father. He's not a way, he is the way. And that exclusivity, that claim that what we would call biblical Christianity has always had is what would get Christians in trouble then and increasingly gets us in trouble now. For, for Christians, it's, it's, you know, we, we might have a hard time going, well, how hard would that be to not burn some incense? Again, we're removed quite a long ways and, and, and those kind of practices, maybe for most of us, seem so kind of foreign. Although, again, there's plenty of New Age and, and, and other kinds of religions that people practice and people come to Jesus out of those and, and so they've got habits of things they've done. So we need to try to put ourselves into their point of view and their point of history and they would have had to be courageous. They're living in a city where there's all this pressure and this is how people live and do life and if I want to buy food, I got to go along with it and if I'm going to not go along with it, it, it might cost me like Antipas, my faithful witness, Jesus says, it might cost me my life, my family. Am I willing to give it up? Jesus commends them. He says, you hold fast to my name, even as you did in the days of Antipas. So clearly he was a famous believer in that city who, who died for holding fast to the exclusive name of Jesus alone. So those are Jesus' words of praise and, and commendation. They have conviction. But, but Jesus has a rebuke to them as, as well, and it's related to their compromise. There, there was conviction, but there was also some compromise in the church. So let's read verses 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, You have some, so not everyone, but you have some who hold, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Well, let's just pause. He's going to explain that in a second, but at verse 15, he says, also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we saw that word Nicolaitan already in the series. We don't know anything about the Nicolaitans at the time, what exactly that was all about. There's a lot of good educated study that goes into it. The good news is we don't have to know much about them to understand the, the bigger problem because whatever these Nicolaitans were into, it was similar to this teaching of Balaam. And we do have an explanation 
about what that was. So now let me keep reading verse 14, and we'll unpack this. You have some in your church, this church that has people with conviction, but you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So this teaching of Balaam, what what is that all about? Most of us, unless we are scholars in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew Scriptures, when we hear of Balaam, we, we think of the stories found in our children's Bibles, right? We think of the talking donkey, Balaam's donkey, and this donkey speaks, and, you know, sometimes God miraculously can have a donkey speak. And uh, so we think of that maybe in association with Balaam. Uh, his story, by the way, comes in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 24, um, in, in those verse chapters, he's kind of this neutral guy. Um, <clears throat> Balak uh, wants to hire Balaam. So Balaam is not a Jewish person. He's not a part of the people of Israel. He, he, he gets hired because Balak um, wants Balaam, this, this prophet of sorts, to curse Israel. So Balak says, I want to hire you, Balaam, to come and curse God's people. Um, but Balaam is prevented over and over again from cursing Israel. Even though he wanted to, he was getting paid to do it. All he's ever able to do is bless them. All he's ever ever able to do is is bless God's people. And so, you know, we kind of look at him as, well, okay, he wasn't a bad guy, but he wasn't a great guy. He's just kind of a hired gun to do his thing. And at the end, God won't let him curse the Israelites. All he's able to do is, is bless the Israelites. That's what most of us remember maybe or know about the teaching of Balaam. But if you were a Jew living in Pergamum, and if you knew your Hebrew scriptures, you knew that the story continued, actually, into Numbers 25. See, in Numbers 25, in some ways, he's drifted off the scene, but what we learn is that he advises the Midianite and Moabite women how to incite and tempt the men of Israel to join with these Moabite women in sacrifices and sexual immorality. So Numbers 25, 1 and 2. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people of Israel began to whore. Began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Very nice English way of saying they started committing sexual immorality with all these women of these daughters of Moab, these invited, these women invited the people, the Israelites, to the sacrifices of their gods, so that's the idolatry, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So you have the, the people of Israel now having all kind of sexual immorality, we'll talk about that in a second, and then there's worship going on, and so it's this this stuff. And you might recall when we went through the minor prophets, God had a lot to say about his people whoring after the gods and others and committing whoredom and strong language, strong language. Chapter 25, verse 6, behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Um, and they were weeping at the tent, entrance of the tent of meeting. So, so this is all going on. But we're, you're, well, where's Balaam, right? Well, jump ahead to Numbers 31. And looking back on all of this, it says, Numbers 31, 16, Behold, these, that is the Moabite and Midianite women, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. The incident of Peor is Numbers 25, where they hoard with these women. And according to 31.16, it was on Balaam's advice. So Balaam isn't just this neutral, yeah, I, I, I want to do what you're telling me to do, Balak, curse, but God won't let me, so I'll just bless him and now let me have my money and, you know, neutral. No, on his advice, he says, hey, ladies, you want to get the Israelites? This is how you do it. And so... This whole thing happens. 
the Bible tells us that God in judging his people, 24,000 were killed because of their unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. So that's what God's people who had, who had heard the scriptures, they knew what Balaam is. And now Jesus says, uh, I commend you for your conviction uh, in my, of my name. You're holding on and saying I'm the only way amidst all of this stuff. But I, I have this, you have compromised because there's some, not everybody, but some who hold to this teaching of Balaam. This, this mix of idol worship and sexual immorality, sexual sin. This is fascinating. Balaam in Hebrew means conquer the people and Nicolaitan in Greek, that word means conquer the people. So even though we don't know what the Nicolaitans were all about, they're linked with those who followed Balaam. That word in Hebrew, Balaam, and this word in Greek both mean to conquer the people and both, and, and the people were conquered as they gave in to these idolatrous and immoral sins. Um, We need to remember, and maybe this will be new for some of us, but we need to remember what what some words mean. So in verse 14, in in this word of rebuke, these, these who follow the teaching of Balaam, and as he defines it, he says, these teachings who taught Balak how to use these women from these other nations to be a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So eating food sacrificed to idols speaks of the actual act, not necessarily you know, going to the market and buying some of this meat that maybe had been part of a sacrifice. Paul and Romans and elsewhere would, would say, you know, your conscience needs to be clear if that's okay to do, you know, but, but here it's clear, like, no, you can't take part in sacrificing to idols or sexual immorality. So what is sexual immorality? What, what does that, that mean? Two words in English. In the Greek, it's one word. It's a Greek word, pornea. You can maybe hear in that Greek word, our English word, pornography, this, this Greek word, pornea, called sexual immorality. New Testament scholars and linguists, they, they tell us that this word is found all throughout Greek literature. And, 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 and in literature, it always refers to a variety of things. It's not just one thing. It includes adultery. So having sexual relation with someone who's not your Spouse, that's adultery. It includes fornication. That is having sexual relation before you're married. That's pornea. That's sexual immorality. Prostitution is pornea. Homosexual practice is pornea. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice that's outside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that and what the Torah describes is called sexual immorality. And the Greek translation would call it pornea. Sexual immorality. It's not just, you know, doing pornography or, or you know, or, or explicit bad things. We, we have to remember. It's this umbrella term. I used to, as a youth pastor, when we talk about these things, say anything. God created this amazing gift for husbands and wives. Sexuality, and the Bible celebrates it. But when we when we do anything outside of it, anything, fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, sex with someone not our spouse, um, any, anything, prostitution is listed. Again, homosexual practice is listed. That, that's sexual immorality. And, and the Bible's pretty clear. Again, I used to say to students, students always want to know God's will. What's God's will for my life? I remember as a young Christian in high school wanting to know, What's God's will for my life? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, God says, this is the will of God for you. Your sanctification, your holiness, that is that you abstain from pornea, abstain from sexual immorality. 
Don't engage in these practices that fall outside of God's will for you. And so Jesus says to this church, I, I commend you, you have conviction. You, you didn't deny me, even like Antipas, who I'm given my name, faithful witness. You, you held true that there's one way, it's me. But some, some in your midst, some, they, they've bought into the teaching of Balaam, that, that it's okay to believe in Jesus, but I can, I can sin sexually the way I want because it's not sin, you know, it doesn't matter. And Jesus says, no. In fact, he says, he says, no. He says, verse 16, repent. Repent. And let me, I'll say more about that in, in a second. I love Chuck Swindoll, uh, amazing communicator, an amazing conveyor of words. He, he says it like this. It doesn't take long for the practice of compromise to become the pattern of compromise. It doesn't take long for the practice of compromise to become the pattern of compromise. And that's the whole issue here. Jesus says, yes, you've got these, these strengths and, and your conviction of me is good, but there's some who are compromising. And if this practice of compromise isn't dealt with, it'll become a pattern of compromise. So, so Jesus's word to them is repent, repent, repent. Such a great word. Repent is to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin. It's, it's to do a 180. We, we think of repentance often in English as having a, a sorrowful, contrite experience, and that is possible and can be, but the emphasis of this word is on a total change, thought and behavior, with respect to how we think and act. And so you've heard me say it. That's why Martin Luther famously said, the Christian life is repentance. Every day I need to repent because I'm prone to wander. I drift, you drift. Every day, no, I follow Jesus and his word. Jesus and his word, not what the culture says is okay, not what some in the church maybe say. I have to repent and follow Jesus. And so Jesus gives this amazing gift to this church. This word is is a good word, repent, turn. And he says, if you don't, I will come to you soon and war against them, those in the church who are compromising, with the sword of my mouth. This is our Redeemer who we sang about, church, who, who knows what we go through and is there to pray for us to the Father on our behalf and is there to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we all get tempted and we all struggle and there's, there's temptations and there's times we do sin, but we have to repent. Because if we don't, if compromise, the, the practice leads to the pattern and we don't, Jesus says, I, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna... I'm going to deal with this group with the sword of my mouth. 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin, where? At the household of God. We, we are first in line as God's sons and daughters. Our, we, we need to repent where, where there's compromise and we need to turn. Otherwise, Jesus says, I, I will deal with you. I, I will judge you. I will, I will judge you with the word of my mouth. Kristen and I have been married almost 30 years now, and um, one of the first churches we were part of when we got married doesn't exist anymore. And I, I, I don't have a word from God about it, but I have an opinion that, that Jesus shut down that church because of sin. Um, we, we had moved and, and relocated, um, but some time later, we found out that uh, one of the elders of the church had been have, who was married and, and, and everything ha- had been having an affair with one of the leaders that was on the platform leading worship, and this went on and on and on. This is an elder of the church, one of the pastors of the church. And there were other, other things going on too we learned about, and, and as this thing exploded and people were hurt, obviously, and there wasn't repentance, this, this man left his wife and this woman who was married and had kids was now pregnant with this man. She left her family and they went on. 
um, they didn't repent. Um, this, this church blew up and people left and scattered, but, but this church closed down. This, this church, is, it doesn't exist anymore. So we, we can say, well, there's consequences, Paul. Yeah, and uh, yes, but it also may very well be that Jesus didn't want this, this lamppost to exist anymore. There had been too much sin going on and not being dealt with, and better for that lamppost of a church to be gone and to have the saints scatter elsewhere. But it's sad. It's sad to think about. So Jesus says, repent, return to me. If not, I will come soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then the summons to hear and the promise, and we'll end here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the Nike, the victor, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, you've heard me joke that these chapters of Revelation are the low-hanging fruit, the easy part. Well, here's what some scholars say about this. The language is highly symbolic and hard to pin down. <laughs> yeah, uh, just, just a little bit. Um, regarding the white stone, a new name, another scholar says, there are perhaps a dozen or more plausible interpretations of the white stone. Well, at the end of the day, some things are difficult, but we can get the point, again, by connecting some dots, I think, from the rest of Revelation. So just briefly, we have two promises here to the victors, those who, those who repent and conquer and overcome. Um, here's the promises. First off, hidden manna. So what was manna? Manna was that miraculous bread that, that was provided to the people of Israel in the wilderness. It was bread from heaven. And it was a symbol that God sustained and God gave life. And in the Gospels, Jesus called himself the true manna who'd come down from heaven. And so here's the idea. If you fight temptation to compromise and repent, then Jesus says, I'll give you me. You'll be satisfied in me. Yeah, the world promises things and, and what the world promises, being on the right side of history on these things, whatever it may be, they, they promise things, but, but reject that. Don't compromise. And, and if you do, you'll get me. I'll satisfy you. The world's gonna starve you. I'm gonna feed you. You'll be satisfied in me. I'll give you this hidden manna that the world doesn't know anything about. I think, I think that biblically gives some idea for what this phrase means. And then the second promise, the white stone with the new name. Um, in, in antiquity, there's many documents that talk about how in the ancient world, in a court case, um, if you were acquitted, you'd get this white stone. This would be kind of your, your symbol of, okay, I'm, I'm free. I'm, I'm, I'm clear to go. Whereas like a dark colored stone meant you, you were guilty. The, the white stone meant you were acquitted. Um, they they are, had a place in, in sports as well. Victors would receive this white stone um, and, and it would be your, your admission to continue and remain in the games and, and so forth, okay? And, and then to have this, this verdict of, of innocent and cleansed and, and, and your sins are freed, I've redeemed you, all of that, then um, there's this idea, not, not of there being some mysterious name, but again, end the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 4. What's this name, this new name, this hidden name? Jesus in Revelation 22, 4, it says, it says that we will see Jesus' face and his name will be on their foreheads. So Christians, we, we bear his name. We bear his name. And as we get this white stone, um, we, we have his name. We belong to him. We're secure in him. It's a promise that, again, to Pergamum, living in a town where the authorities could wield the sword, Jesus says, no, no, I'm a sovereign. I control with my word. And, and if you repent and you overcome, you're going to get the hidden manna. You're going to get me. I'll supply your needs. I know it'll be hard. You'll have pressure to turn and to just compromise and just go along with everybody. But, but don't. Stay convicted of who I am and, and I'll supply your needs. And, and in the end, one day, you, you get me, you get entrance to me and you, you get to behold my name. My name will be on your, your forehead as well.
Those who conquer will be vindicated, saved, and given this new identity. The manna, the white stone, the new name are various ways of depicting the heavenly reward, the eternal life to be granted to believers. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to us. Let's repent where there is compromise and let's be a church that says we will not tolerate compromise. It's one thing to have struggle and we need to be a church unlike Ephesus that didn't love well. Remember, they they had lost their first love, both love for God and probably love for one another. We need to be a church that stands strong on conviction and doesn't compromise, but also knows how to love and how, how to help people who, who struggle. And it's one thing to struggle and to be in the fight, to walk with Jesus and to repent. That's different than a, a flat out, no, I'm going, I'm going this way. I don't care what, what God says in his word, what Jesus says, and, and we need to resist that. Let's stand. Allison and Jason have one more song for us to sing in response. Heavenly Father, please help us be a church that repents. Help us be individuals that that recognize any sin we commit, even if it's against some other person, a horizontal sin, ultimately it's sin against you and we have to return to you and, and, and confess, admit our sin and where we are out of line and get right with you in our behavior and our thoughts and our, our feelings. And, and so help us be that kind of a church. Help us be a church that is full of conviction for the name of Jesus, but also a church that doesn't practice compromise. Help us, help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.